Welcome to our weekly, and I mean weekly Wednesday night shear. The glare. Let's show what this is. Oh, okay, that's better. This week's parsha, parsha's tildes. We're pre-recording the shear. It's not Wednesday night, unfortunately. It's Wednesday afternoon due to family simcha tonight. Yet Hashem will be doing the same probably Yiral of Kislev day after the Chasana so that we can attend the Shevrachas at night. Um, apologize to the regular attendees and to the ones on Skype but we will then have to send you the video so that you can pause and turn off the rabbi whenever you'd like. Six Pashas Tildes, the Shabbos, Shabbos, Varchim, Chedish, Kislev, 40 years. Kiddush HaShluchim, the Shabbos, we like to welcome all the Shluchim that will be coming from all parts of the world, literally all around the world. Um, there will be 40 Mitzvah tanks in honor of the 40th year of Chedish, Kislev. The amount of Nigunim, songs, little video clips going around on on, um, on WhatsApp and etc etc on social media it's just amazing just beautiful but some of them are really very very beautiful literally tear jerking and it shows the actus between chassidim the ava between chassidim the love of chassidim and especially the love of chassidim to the rebbe Shchedish Kislev, spoken numerous times. This is a very special day for Chassidim. The Rebbe is Gizont. The Rebbe returned to his regular, rigorous schedule on a daily basis where the Rebbe had had to take a brief, shall we call it, I don't, wouldn't say a break, but there was a slight difference in the Rebbe's actual interaction with the Chassidim, unfortunately for Itkufa's time from Shemir Yatzeres, Akofis, until Shchedish Kislev. Um, the Rebbe, as we know, had suffered a heart attack, several heart attacks for that matter. We're not going to discuss spiritually. Because what do we know? Honestly speaking. What do we actually know? Spiritually, what the Rebbe had undertaken at that Kufisman, at that time, at that era. For the Hasidim it was horrific, it was a nightmare. It was beyond a nightmare, it was just a... a It was indescribable, actually. Personally, I guess basically on the flip side, we were spared by not being here, and the communications to where we were were very, very sparse, schwach. The occasional hookups that we were able to hear from the Rebbe's room A hookup is a live feed. In those days, over the phone, regular telephone, no pictures, no nothing. You sat all huddled together in a room, and um, you were lucky if you had a speakerphone, so that you could put the phone on speaker so everybody could hear. Actually, if I remember correctly, I may be wrong. I think someone was able to make some kind of contraption to connect the actual speaker so that we could all hear the sikhas, the words, the holy words of the Rebbe. It was extremely emotional, extremely trying for Chassidim throughout the world. 
And needless to say that people did not want to not be here. People wanted to be on the spot, knowing every second, every moment what was going on. The most, what I took from prolific stories or conversations, I believe one of the doctors was quoted saying that all these years in medical school he did not learn as much about medicine as he did being by the Rebbe. The Rebbe taught him more the few weeks that he was with the Rebbe than he had learned all his years in medical school. Ma Pele, or my son would say, Ma Cash. Big deal. So what else are you going to tell me news? Obviously. But it was just a simple Siach Lefitumai, as you would call it. Just an expression the person said. He blurted out. He didn't have any reason to say it. But attitude-wise, one of the most profound lessons that the Rebbe gave during this era was when the Rebbe was already returning to Fabrengen. The Rebbe was sitting in Fabrengen for the Chassidim. Understand, please, <coughs> if you never attended a Fabrengen, or you don't know what it means, listening to a broadcast the first time here, if Fabrengen is a city gathering, which the Rebbe would sit in his holy place, and the Rebbe would talk sometimes for an hour or plus, without notes, obviously, and the Rebbe would discuss different topics, different subjects, Chassidus, Kabbalistic, Nigla, or just plain lessons, life lessons, for the general populace. By this Hasidic discourse, one of the doctors that was treating the Rebbe attended. Now talking happens to be one of the most strenuous things. Not for us young people, obviously. And look at the women, they can talk all day. (laughs) Sorry. You get sued for that. Public speaking is a very strenuous thing. And although the Rebbe used microphones, you can see the Rebbe would strain to talk. So when you're talking for hours on end, with brief intermissions for Chassidim to sing the Gunim for them, say the Chaim to the Rebbe, for the Rebbe to bless them, say the Chaim to the Baraka. It's quite strenuous. The doctor, the cardiologist, I guess, was watching this and was very concerned. They all were very, very pro the Rebbe doing what most Polish Rebbes and Hungarian Rebbes do. They go to Arizona, they go to Florida, they go somewhere for a vacation. They got to take a break somewhere. It's, it's, It's... constant barrage from the Hasidim, constant advice-seeking, constant blessing-seeking, etc., etc. It's extremely trying, extremely pressure, extreme pressures. But yet, although they pushed, and they tried to push, and they tried to request and beseech the Rebbe that he too go on vacation, the Rebbe rejected the idea totally. This didn't <coughs> fare well with the doctors. When the doctor sat there by the Fabrengen watching the Rebbe speak and speak and speak, the doctor was getting winded from it. So in between, when the Chassidim was singing a nigan, the doctor went over to say the Chaim to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe was very, very very thankful, appreciative, all that the doctors had done, especially since the Rebbe's request was that the hospital be brought to his room, not he was not going to the hospital. So the Rebbe had a tremendous recognition for the doctors. 
So obviously the doctor stepped over to talk to the Rebbe. And the doctor told the Rebbe, Rebbe, if you don't start taking it easy, there's a 40% chance that this could recur. The Rebbe ignored him. So he repeated it. Perhaps the Chassidim was singing too loud and the Rebbe didn't hear him and he wanted to make sure that the message got to the Rebbe. And he said, Rebbe, If the Rebbe doesn't take it easy, this has to show a 40% chance this can happen again. And again the Rebbe didn't respond. So the doctor brazenly said to the Rebbe, Rebbe, do you hear what I'm saying to you? And the Rebbe turned to him and said to him, I heard you. You told me there's a 60% chance this will not happen again. And immediately after Fabrengen, the Rebbe called in his secretary and said, please dismiss this doctor from his services. The Rebbe would not let that doctor treat him again. Obviously, the Rebbe said, the Rebbe's message to that was, you need to be positive. The forefathers our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, were Mekayim Kola Teira Kula. We spoke about this. They kept the whole Teira even before the Teira was given. What ramifications, what lessons, life lesson is that to us? They kept Teira Mitzvah spiritually. Spiritually in the spirit. And they are connected spiritually. First of all, we're not spiritual. Second of all, a person says, I want to spiritually put on my film today. I want to spiritually keep Shabbos. I want to spiritually make this food kosher. It doesn't work if it's not what you're doing. Hence, one needs to do the physical mitzvah. So what lesson is it to us? the spiritually of our forefathers. Each and every Jew, says the Rebbe, has an obligation to his fellow Jew, Kol Yisrael, Arevim, Every Jew is a guarantor for one another. Therefore, one needs to always reach out to a fellow Jew that's not yet as observant as they or the Mishnah tells us one that knows Aleph Beis can teach somebody that knows Aleph. One that knows as minimal as you know, if there's somebody, excuse me, that knows less than you, you need to teach them. You need to reach out to them. When I go to a person and I encourage them to put on tefillin, I encourage them to keep Shabbos, I encourage them to do another mitzvah, spiritually I am taking part of their mitzvah physically I am obviously not they are keeping their Shabbos they are putting on their own throne it's going on their hand and on their arm on their head so physically I am not connected to the mitzvah but spiritually because I encouraged it because I inspired it that's what my mitzvah is and that is a life lesson for us from the forefathers the forefathers are telling us that spiritually you need to reach out to your fellow Jew if you know somebody that's doing less, that's less observant than you, you need to reach out. And it will be beneficial for you as well. Because when you look at the other person, you say, okay, I know I do three mitzvahs. I want to get this person to do at least one or two, maybe even. If you get that person, and the person does agree to do the one, two mitzvahs, you say to yourself, oh, Maybe I'm lacking. Maybe I'm slacking off here. Maybe I need to add. 
Maybe I need to step up my game so that this person have what to look up to, have what to follow, have what to emanate. And therefore, spiritually, beneficially both for us and for our fellow Jews. We know the Pasha discusses the birth of of Yitzchak and Yaakov as twins, Isaac, Jacob, and Esav. Jacob and Isaac, I don't know what I said. But it is Yaakov and Esav. The twin boys that are born to Rivka. This is much that involves, we'll hopefully be able to get back to you today. But on the first glance, I want to jump ahead. Yitzchak wants to bless his sons. And he sends out Esav to go prepare some food. Esav was taught by his father how to shecht, how to slaughter ritually. And therefore he relied on Esav. We spoke already before, according to some commentaries, Esav had a trick up his sleeve, because when he was slaughtered, he had to go back and forth. He was able to shoot the arrow at an animal and have it go back and forth as it passed the throat. So ritually slaughtered the animals. He sends Esav to go bring food and then come back and receive your blessing. Esav, chronologically, was born first and therefore he officially was the Bechir, the firstborn. We have, in the beginning of the Pasha, where Esav sells that right to Yaakov. But not necessarily did he want to live up to it here. As Yitzchak was about to give the blessings, Esav was called in by Yitzchak, and Esav was told, go bring food and come back and get a blessing. And thereafter, he would bless Yaakov. They were not only different in nature, they were totally different in their body um, making, upmaking. Esau was extremely, extremely hairy. Arms, face, even at the young age. And Yaakov, Yitzchak, unfortunately at the time, was, bo- was blind. We'll get into, hopefully, what the blindness is all about. In a simple note, according to one of the commentaries, he became blinded by the Akedah when he was tied on the altar, and the uh, angels saw the great devotion to God that these two human beings have. They cried. And the tears of the angels, because he was laying on his back, fell into his eyes and blinded him. It's a medrash. Rivka wanted Yaakov to get the blessings, not Esav. So Rivka calls in Yaakov and says to her son, my dear son, I'm going to prepare you the food that your father wants to eat. Go in and give it to him. And say, because he's blind, Tell him that you're Esav. A little powerful job here. And besides, mother, there's a major problem with that. I mean, I know that my father's blind, and he's not going to uh, recognize or see me, but what if he reaches out to touch my arm, what if he doesn't trust me? And also, Esav had a very gruff voice. And mine is very refined. What if he recognizes that? 
So Rivka said, I have an idea for you. I have a plan. There was a coat that Nimrod used to use for hunting. A special hunting coat. This coat attracted the animals. She says, you'll take this coat, you'll put it on, and um, if he tells you he wants to see you, he wants to feel your arms, you'll be able to give him. You'll be able able to feel it. He'll feel hairy, furry. Yaakov was so scared. So scared. It's about mother. What if he realizes? He figures it out. And instead of blessing me, he curses me. Then what? Rivka says something, which I guess... My mother being Sarifka Shalom was also able to say it because of that. Your curse will be on me. If God forbid Yitzchak curses you, those curses will come on me. So first of all, we have to look at this, examine this and say, hey, That's quite a powerful thing to say. Second of all, what is Yaakov thinking? Okay, I'm willing to chance to get the blessings, and I'm not concerned about being cursed, because my mother will get the curse. What child wants his mother to be cursed? How absurd is that? So, how did that appease Yaakov? How did that convince Yaakov that, okay, thank you, Mama, I'll do it. Because if there's a curse, the curse will go to you. Where's, where's the here? Where's the love for his mother? The blessing of Yitzchak was not an average blessing. It came from a very, very high source. And because it came from this high source, Yaakov knew he needed to be a vessel for this. He needed to be a keli. Let us take a moment and discuss that. A vessel for a blessing. Oftentimes, people go to the oil for a bracha. Well, they go to 770 and they stand by the Rebbe's place or by the door of the Rebbe's room and they ask for a bracha, for a blessing. The Rebbe blessed everybody. But the person needs to know, prior to requesting a blessing, to beseeching a blessing, one needs to know they need to be a vessel to accept the blessing. You can't pour soup into a ladle, a strainer. Not if you want the soup. If you want the vegetables, maybe. But if you want the soup, you can't pour it through. Because it's going to go right through You can't eat soup with a fork. And therefore the same is the blessings. One needs to be a vessel for a blessing. Sometimes you need to undertake certain resolutions to be able to receive a blessing. One needs to concentrate before requesting a blessing where it's going to go. I've told the story before of a group of Bachrim that went on Mitzayim on a Friday. He used to go out, do outreach, put on film with people to give out brochures, neshek, etc. And they went in a van out in the Galilee in Israel. And one of the Bachrim had a custom on just that Thursday night or generally Thursday night, sat and studied all night. 
So he hadn't slept. On the way back, they had about an hour and a half to Shabbos. They were tired. They had some refreshments. They pulled over on the side of the road and they decided to have some refreshments and the beautiful fresh air, open air, beautiful scenery, whatever. The advisor of this other Bachar was very tired. Went to the a little further over on the side to a tree, in the shade of a tree. Laid down and went to sleep. Immediately fell asleep in a deep sleep. Whatever the reason was, when the Bachar decided to pack up and move on, they forgot that this guy was with them. They didn't see him. He was a little further over. They left to Adam. In the middle of nowhere. Kitzer, an hour or so later, the boy wakes up and sees Hayel uh, Dinah. There's nobody here. They left him. See, oh, I forgot to plug in the microphone here. I hope it's clear. Sorry if the recording is not 100%. I forgot to plug in my microphone for the video. Anyway, they go off. He goes off and he starts to walk towards the main road. Ula Yirachim, he goes to the main road. Maybe he'll find a car that'll get him back to Yeshiva. Comes to the main road, it's already pushing it now. Shabbos is, on, is upon, upon him practically. And there's no cars. There's nothing here. So he starts to walk. As far as he'll get, maybe he'll find a, a Jewish settlement. Unfortunately, one settlement after the other was all Arab, and he was not spending Shabbos there. He didn't think they knew the songs for the Chadidi. So, push comes to shove. He sees the sun is setting, and he no longer can carry. He had objects in his pocket, couldn't carry on Shabbos. Even though he was in Israel, but this place, obviously on the highway, there was no Erev. So he put his stuff under a rock and he made a sign so he'll hopefully find it again when he gets back and continued walking and ultimately found himself a kibbutz. Mm-hmm. He came into the kibbutz and he said, uh, Shalom Chavirim, I'm in a bit of a bond, bind. I'm stuck. I have nowhere to go for Shabbos. So they said, go over to this third house over here. That's the uh, secretary, whatever you call him, of the kibbutz, and uh, see if he has any arrangements, any accommodations. So the Bach went over there and tells the man the situation, that he's stranded for Shabbos. And the fellow says, please, we have here an extra room. Be our guest, and you can even join us in the dining room to eat. Unfortunately, this kibbutz was not a from kibbutz. And let's add in our godel. He could not eat from there. He asked, though, if it's possible to get two chalas and vegetables. They happened to have traditional chalas, which they got, obviously, from out of the kibbutz, probably. I'm just imagining that part. Um, I don't know where they got it from. If it was from the kibbutz, I don't know what he accomplished. Anyway, he took this to his room, and whatever davening he knew by heart, he davened by heart. It was quite a different tune for the Chaldeli, I'm sure. And he washed, he made Kiddush on his chalas. And his Suda Shabbos consisted of the chalas and vegetables. The next day he went to look for again some fruits, vegetables, whatever it might be. Um, I don't know if he was allowed to carry there or not because it's not from kibbutz. I don't know what kind of area they have. Anyway, 
And that's not part of the story. <laughs> he um, sees groups of children all over the place. And he says, hey, why not? Kindlach, he says, do you want to have a Shabbos party? And they said, sure. Sounds great. What Shabbos? Come, I'll explain. And a nice group of children came over, together with their counselors, and they all sat and they started kumzitzing, they started singing songs that he imagined that they could sing and they sang along with him. Maybe he taught them some new songs. It was quite a joyous occasion. And then he told them stories, stories they never heard in their lives. Then he decided to tell them about what's called Ashkacha Pratis, Divine Providence. His kinlach, there's no such thing as coincidence. Everything is divine providence, part of it's from God. However, yeah, yeah, you didn't answer me, so I didn't go, but I was going to be there two o'clock. But now you didn't answer, so I didn't go. Okay, I'm I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of giving a shear, I'll call you back in a half hour. Sorry. So, he told them what Ashkacha Prat is all about. I don't belong here, obviously. I'm an outcast in this place. I'm a misfit, not an outcast. And my story was an interesting one. I was with a group of guys and I fell asleep and they left me on the road and I walked and this is where I ended up here. I have no idea what the reason is I ended up here. But here I am, telling you stories, teaching you things that unfortunately you poor children have no idea what it's all about. One of the counselors, a 15, 16 year old girl says, I can tell you. I can tell you the reason you're here, my friend. And she said that she's interested in Judaism. She has an interest in Judaism. Unfortunately, the kibbutz doesn't. And she's gone numerous times to ask from the head of the kibbutz to invite Chabad to come speak, to come have a party, to do something, teach about the holidays. And he always rejects, he always says no. This week I said to myself, listen, he keeps rejecting me, he keeps saying no. But I do feel I need it. I need inspiration. So I did something I never did in my life, and something that's totally against the principles of the kibbutz. I prayed. I prayed every day, Hashem, send somebody here. If there's a Hashem listening, and if Hashem has any kind of love for us, send us somebody to talk to the children, to talk to the family. That, she says, my friend, is why you are here. Because Hashem answered my prayers. And so I see the power of prayer is a very potent thing. And so obviously the power of blessing comes from a very high source. Now Yaakov knew that Yitzchak's blessing comes from a very, very high source. And he said, am I a vessel? Am I a clean? Am I capable of accepting this tremendous blessing this tremendous spiritual injection I don't think so then he heard the words of his mother if God forbid there's any curses here it's on me And she knew that curses from Yitzchak would be very severe because they come from a very high source. But she was prepared to go on a serious nefesh, an abnegation on self-sacrifice, to kill herself, to get the curses, so that her son could be blessed. He realized 
the Mesidus Nefesh. Excuse me, that he needs to have to get the brachas from Hashem. And therefore, not that he wanted, God forbid, his mother to be cursed, but he wanted, he now understood the severity, the sincerity of his mother, showing him how important and how great these blessings are and how special they are. Yitzchak, as we said, was blind. Yitzchak was blind. At his old age, he became blinded, or as we said before, when he was 37, yet he was blinded. But the Taylor tells us, in this week's Parsha, chapter 27, verse 1, Perich of Zion, Aleph. His eyes are not able to see. Why? Why blind him? It doesn't make sense. Just because he became old, he became blind. His forefathers didn't. People lived till the end of their lives, 100 plus years, in complete perfect health. Why do you say the blindness comes from being old? And even more so, it says in the Teda that he was blessed. As Yitzchak, the Almighty blessed Yitzchak. Obviously, a blessing to Yitzchak was that he'd be healthy, that he'd be stirred, that he'd be fine, that he'd have nachas, that he'd have all the things that a person has to get blessed for. So where does this come in of him becoming blind? If you keep in score at home, the Gemara Nedarim, Samach Dalaram, a base 64, side 2, tells us a step further. Summa a blind person is as if he's dead. Why then would Yitzchak be blinded? The sages tell us, it's brought down several reasons for this. One of them is because the Almighty knew that Yitzchak would love Esav. And ultimately he would bless him. So Omar HaKadosh Baruch the Almighty said, I'm going to blind his eyes. He should not see who he is blessing. So the entire reason for him being becoming blind was so that he should bless Yaakov instead of Esau. If Yitzchak would have been able to see like everybody else, he would have blessed Esau. And therefore, Akash Baruch blinded him, not to see who he's blessing. And Yaakov can get his brachas. So we have a simple question here that comes up, that arises. In order for Yaakov to get the brachas, Akash Baruch had to take away Yitzchak's sight. He could have done something very simple. He could have revealed to Yitzchak the true essence of Esav, that he was a Russia, he was a wicked boy. And thereby, Yitzchak would have said, Oh no, if this one's righteous and this one's wicked, obviously I'm not going to give the wicked one the brachas. But the truth is, this is not said in order to shock Yitzchak. 
He knew already Esau's wives. He knew, he saw what Esau was married. He saw what Esau was into. He knew very, very well what was going on. So therefore, he was not being sold under the bus. He's not being sold under the bus. He knew exactly what they were doing. How the wives were so wicked and he had no control over them. But rather, it was not an open, closed case. It was not a simple thing to say. Esav worked around everything. Esav knew how to fool his father. He asked questions like, how do we take Misa from salt? To try to show his father how righteous he really was. So we still remember the question, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could reveal the truth. And he would have had no reason, he would have no intention, no, it would never occur to him to bless him. The answer is, my friends, this is an important life lesson for all of us. For the 57 years, over five decades, Yitzchak was blind. So he should not see what was going on with Esau. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu would not tell Lashon Hara, even on a wicked Esav. If you keep score only on the Sanhedrin, Yeralef, Amiralef. Sanhedrin 11, side 1 says, When Ochen is in the days of Yeshua, Shol Yeshua is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yeshua asked by the Almighty, Mi Chatulacha, who sinned? Amalek HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Look, am I a snitcher? Am I someone that's going to talk about somebody else? And therefore HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not have a way to refrain, to hold back Esau from getting the brachas. Unless he took away the sight of Yitzchak. We need to learn from this a very powerful life lesson. If even when it comes to a wicked person like Esau, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not prepared to say Lashon Hara about him, how much more so? We need to be careful from a person that might have done something wrong. Yesterday, a week ago, a year ago, 30 years ago. We don't, we don't, we don't repeat it. We don't repeat Chasashalom Bashanara on a Jew. And so by Matantera, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that each and every Jew has to know Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. He's giving the strength of Anoichi Hashem. That this should be Alekecha. This should be your strength. And therefore, if ever possible, to refrain from Lashon Hara, how important, how severe it is. told this story as well in one of the uh, openings of one of the maestres in that show they brought this uh, basically literature not any connection no affiliation with the Babich to speak and he said like everybody else as you know 
I have a personal story with the Rebbe. And he went on to tell how when he got married, he was a Talmud Chochem. Aida was able to learn. And he was looking for a girl that could support him. And Baruch Hashem, he found a wonderful woman, girl. They married. They settled in Yerushalayim. And he sat and studied Tate all day. And she supported Family supported. Everything was really fine and peachy, barring the fact that unfortunately they were not blessed with children. And they tried. They tried right, they tried left, they tried everything they possibly could. All the praying and all the tzedakah and all the things that possibly one can do, unfortunately for them, the day came and his wife heard from a friend about the Lubavitcher Rebbe and she tells her husband please, please let's go get a bracha Litvaks didn't have any great love loss for the Rebbe he said it's not happening not happening for Lisha Months go by and she's still not becoming pregnant and all the treatments which are very painful. He finally acquiesced to go to the Rebbe. They come into the Rebbe's room and she bursts out crying. And the Rebbe says to her, don't cry, Mamali, you're going to have a child. Straight off the bat. Then he tells the husband, Kumarain. He says, What do you do? It's me. I'm a godl. I sit and live Tata all day long. Allah Tata Alameda. Then looks at him and says, So what do you do? Do? I told you, I'm sitting and learning. What do you do? What do you do? I was shocked. I was shocked. He says, where do you live? He says, Yerushalayim. He says, where? He tells him the name of the street. <laughs> so the looked at him. He said, that street, there's two buildings. One has a grocery underneath and one doesn't. Which one do you live in? The guy could have been blown away. I live in an obscure street which most Jerusalemites do not know where it is. When I go take a taxi home, I got to tell him to drop me off on the corner because he has no idea where the street is. I tell him which street that went parallel with the perpendicular, and he knows where to find that one. But my street? And the Rebbe, who I don't think was ever necessarily says, knew of my street knew of the two buildings, knew that one had a department, one had a grocery and one didn't. So I told the Rebbe which one. Okay. So I saw that the Rebbe has my number. And that I need to do. Learning it alone is not enough. We came out a short while later, my wife was pregnant with our first son. That's how he tells the people. The miracle of the story is he's still not all about Jehoshaphat. Anyway, this is teach us the way of the mind. The Torah tells us the birth and the life of Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esav. But when the Pasuk says, if you keeping, you would like to keep track, chapter 25, verse 22, Rivka was having a major, major dilemma that children were bouncing off the walls inside her uterus. When she passed the Vesmedish, 
she felt the baby banging when she felt when she passed the Chamanah Sanayi house of worship from a different faith the baby started banging she says oh no he's a Michigana he doesn't know where he wants to go Chazal tell us when they were ready in their mother's womb Yaakov and Esau already knew what their paths were Yaakov wanted to go to Bismedrish and Esau wanted to go to Abedinzara. And therefore the Chazal tell us therefore the Chazal tell us Shashniyim Ravu Saviv Nachas Shneyelamis they fought about the Yerusha of the two worlds. So the question, of course, begs to, to ask, why did they have this fight? The approach and the attitude of each one of them different. It's definitely it's a straightforward thing. Yaki wanted Elam Haba, and Asa wanted Elam Haza. Yaakov wanted the world to come, and Asa wanted this world. From here we see that Yaakov wanted this world also. Asa wanted the world to come as well. What was Asa looking about? Yaakov needs this world. you got to be in this world for a hundred plus years. you got to have what to live off of. But Asa, what are you looking for in the world to come? When we dig deeper into this subject, another question arises. Yaakov and Esav were Yitzchak's sons. Yitzchak, with every fiber of his life, was connected to God as was his wife. And therefore... How is it that Esav, in his mother's womb, was already getting urges to go to serve idol worship? Not when he became 13, 15, whatever it was, and that's when he became a Russia. He was already in his mother's womb still. How did he get these urges? So therefore we must say the urges were from a very spiritual source. The Rambam explains the difference in serving God there are two types. Chosid HaMu'ula and Akevish Yitzri. The first one only one's good. He has no other paths, no other lifestyles, nothing. All he wants is good. The second one always looks for something bad to do. And what is his obligation? What is his mission? What is he taxed with? With Kavish and Yitzri, overcoming his Yitzhahara. Yaakov and Esav, as they were created with their natures, they had these two paths. The nature of Yaakov was Ish, Tom, Yeshev, somebody that sat, he was a Chosid Mu'ula, someone who sat and read and studied Torah all day. The Tev of Esau was Ishtayid. He was a hunter. And therefore his mission was to overcome his Yetzirah. And his Etzim, 
His pure nature was to go out and serve Avedizar. But what was his mission? To overcome that. To break it. To overcome that nature. And therefore, this Nachla Shashtei was the war between them. Both Yaakov and Esav. When they were created in nature, they wanted both worlds. But Yaakov understood Elam Hava was the main thing, the world to come, because you have to be pure and holy. And this is therefore apropos for the Chassid and Mu'ula. Whereas Esav, he saw a different light. He saw everything in this world. And he knew that he had to be overcome this Yetzirah. The difference between them is where the question lies. Which of the two worlds is more important? But they definitely both wanted the world and the world to come. We are all B'nai Yaakov. We are the children of Yaakov. And therefore we need to be Yeshiv Tam Eholim. To learn Tera Betvimus. Without any tests, without any trials, tribulations. We need to develop and to devote ourselves completely to Tera. And this is the beginning and the basis of a Jewish home. And with this said, a Jew needs to be a Deya Tzayid. He needs to go out into the world, go out to the fields, and do things to bring in Matamim, to bring in the sweetness of the world. To bring it, Lavino Shabashamayim, like Esav wanted to bring to his father the Matamim. And when one goes out to the world, and he makes and he continues though the yesh of Eilim. He should know that the yesh, the person that goes out to the world, that needs to be kevish as Yitzray, that needs to conquer his Yitzhara, He should know that it's the yesh of Eilim that are protecting him. And therefore, he can go out to the world. He can overcome the trials and tribulations, because the Yeshua'elim are there behind him, they're backing him up. As you know, Yitzchak was told, he's a Karbanela, he should not go out of Israel. We also know the famous question, Avram dies at 175 years old in order that he should not see the sins of Esav because that would pain him so. So the math doesn't work. Avram was 100 when Yitzchak was born. Yitzchak was 60 when the children were born. Making Avram 160. 13 years later is 173. Avram lives for 175 years. So technically two years, because Esav only started acting up after his Bar Mitzvah, two years he did see this. And we don't see anywhere that that Avram became blind. So there's a message that says that by the Akedis Yitzchak, Yitzchak was 37 years old. Avram was 137. Yitzchak was born when Avram was 100. Parachan Yitzchak's neshama flew out of his body. And for two years spent time in Gan Eden. Which is why he recognized when Esav comes in, when Yaakov comes in, he smelled Gan Eden. How did he know what Gan Eden smelled like? Because he was there for two years. Therefore, he didn't age chronologically those two years. So when he was first had the children, at 60, Avram was 162. 
and the Mamitsu therefore is 165, 75. May we merit to be by the Mamitsus and the chasanas of all our children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. And may we merit Reike, to go out of our Be'ashava, to go out of our Golis, our exile, and this very Shabbos to be with Melech HaMashiach in Yerushalayim and Shabbat Shalom to all.